Hello and welcome to Down Home Fear, episode 7, where we explore true crimes and strange happenings in the American South. My name is Keegan, and I'm here to speak with you for the next hour or so about some more bizarre happenings down south. Uh, but before we go too much further, we actually have a new voice joining us today, and I just wanted to introduce her. It's someone you haven't heard before and a person who I've known for a very, very long time, and I'm excited to welcome her to the show. So, hello, Amy. Hi, how are you doing? I am really good. Thank you for agreeing to help me out with this. I'm so excited to be guest starring today. I've been listening since you came out with it, and I've been <laughs> loving it, so I'm pretty pumped about this. Yeah, you were an early adopter of the show. So um, I wanted to ask before we go too much further, um, what made you agree to uh, come on and help me out with this uh, project? Well, as I said, I've been really enjoying listening to it. Um, but I also really like uh, stories, true crime, historical crime, uh, mysteries, unsolved stories. So the idea of getting to research something and then partake with you was pretty exciting. Awesome. Was there a certain thing that got you hooked on true crime before even, you know, agreeing to come on to Down Home Fear? Like, is it something you've been into for a while or? So you know me as a a history lover and I think Mm -hmm. a lot of history has uh, unsolved stories that really pique my interest or people committing crimes that end up being very impactful in history mm-hmm. so that's kind of why I think I have an interest in that um and I, the surgeons in podcasts and uh, you know websites dedicated to true right. crime has kind of piqued my interest cool awesome awesome so what would you say the most iconic crime of your lifetime has been it doesn't have to be something from the south just something that um I don't know kind of resonated with you Need to think about it for a second. Need to consider this for. Um, <laughs> that's tough. I feel like. What did man? I'll tell you what mine was actually. Right, you tell me. You tell me. And this is this is heavy, but um, I was I was thinking about this, and for the last like I think twenty five years or so, uh, the United States has really been characterized by like mass shootings. So uh, like Columbine happened in the late 90s. I think that really changed the whole landscape of things in terms of acts of violence just uh, perpetrated on a really large level. So um, I would say that probably stuff like the Virginia Tech shooting and, uh, I mean, more recently, the Orlando nightclub shooting, uh, things like that, I think, have really defined our uh, culture in a in a terrible terrible way that's a really good answer (laughs) (laughs) welcome to my really fun podcast where we talk about really scary stuff i like don't have a good answer for this i like i don't know i feel like that's a high pressure question okay well i didn't mean to catch you off guard if i come up with something by the end can i say it and then you can edit it in if sure. you want to keep that quiet. Yeah, yeah, sure. If at the end of the episode you have come up with a response, then by all means, I'd be happy to include it. 
Thanks, man. All right, man. Don't make me look like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I won't. Let's get back on the rails here. So um, before we go too much further, I wanted to say that the DHF website is now up. It's downhomefear.com. Uh, you can find bonus material for past episodes as well as, as links to our other online presences on Facebook, SoundCloud, etc., so um, just something that I would recommend checking out if you'd like to see a little bit of the supplemental information that doesn't necessarily make it into um, the, the podcast episodes. And then, um, as always, I feel like a broken record, but I'll just say it again. Uh, if you haven't already, please rate us on iTunes and uh, subscribe if you would like to subscribe. It really helps us gain traction and reach new listeners. So it's a tremendous help. Also, really quickly, just so everybody knows, the music that you hear at the beginning and the end of the podcast is actually Keegan. Um, he's been a guitarist, I think, the entire time I've known him, which is a really long time. Maybe not the entire time. For probably, um, I've been playing guitar for about 12 years and writing music for probably like 14 years, I guess. Um, but yeah. I do. It's true. I compose the uh, ins- most of the instrumental segments of the uh, show. So, yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Fun facts. So without any further ado, Amy is going to take us through the first story today. that's still open, which I know is a little bit different than what Down Home Here Fear has done before. Um, so, but before I get started, I just wanted to let listeners know that this story includes sexual and physical violence. So uh, if that makes you uncomfortable, you might want to skip towards Keegan's section. Um, so I'm going to just go for it. Um, on August 31st, 2016, in Anderson, South Carolina, a couple went missing. Over Labor Day weekend, Charles Carver, 32, and Kayla Brown, 31, go missing. They were a couple. They had moved in together a couple months prior after dating for a few months. The night of August 31st, they were supposed to meet one of Brown's friends for dinner, but they never showed up. When friends and family called them, their phones were off. The couple went missing without a word of warning to their loved ones, which prompted friends and family to worry that this was not a spontaneous vacation, but something else. Perhaps of kidnapping. There were a couple factors that pointed to a possible kidnapping. Um, So one of them was Carver's mother, who asked the apartment manager to check on him. When the apartment manager went to the apartment, 
They found the apartment empty and unlocked. Uh, Brown's car was in the parking lot, but Carver's car was missing from the property. The couple's medications and Brown's glasses and contact lenses were still in the house, which are things that you would normally take with you if you were going to go on a vacation. And their dog, Romeo, was found in the apartment without food or water. Kayla's mother said that Kayla would never leave Romeo without food or water, calling the Pomeranian her daughter's baby. So those factors kind of led their loved ones to think that this was not just them going on a spontaneous vacation, that it was something more malicious. Um, while not named a suspect while they were missing, Brown apparently confided in her friend before she went missing that she felt that Carver's newly ex-wife was stalking her. Um, so I think a couple of friends were a little worried about that um, being a factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of creepy. Um, in September and October, the disappearance got stranger. So about two weeks after the disappearance, activity was noticed on Charles's Facebook which he normally rarely used. On October 1st, milestones started popping up, like on Facebook where you can say like a big life event happened. Right, so like you get engaged, it's like a anniversary or something like that. Exactly. Okay. So they've been missing for about two months at this point. Um, oh, sorry, a full month. October 1st was a full month after they'd been missing. Mm-hmm. Um, so these milestones pop started to pop up, but they were retroactive. So it said on July 1st that Charles and Kayla Brown were expecting a daughter. Another milestone came up on August 1st that announced that they bought a house together. And then a third from September 1st announced that they got married, which is unusual because their family and friends knew that this did not happen. Right. Um, So more posts continued, including memes that said things like, sometimes late at night, I dig a hole in the backyard to keep the nosy neighbors guessing. Okay, that's cryptic and weird as fuck. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, this is something that really started to make people worry. And one meme had the final lines of the Eagles Hotel California. Uh, For those who don't know what those are, here are the lyrics. Last thing I remember, I was running for the door. I had to find the passage back to the place I was before. Relax, said the nightman. We are programmed to receive. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. It's a great song, but in this context, it was creepy. Mm -hmm. And in addition to posting these memes and the milestones, whoever was controlling the page was replying to comments and to messages, sometimes speaking as Carver and sometimes speaking out of character. The language that was being used was unusual for Carver, as he was an aspiring writer. He also was sharing pictures that were a year old or older, and the change in behavior of explosive Facebook activity made friends and family believe it was somebody who hacked the page. So when you say that the language that was being used didn't sound like him, were there examples of these suspicious messages that were sent? Yeah, so it was like things were misspelled, things weren't capitalized. Okay. Um, he messaged, I think it was maybe his sister or it was a friend. I'm sorry, I don't have that in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
the person who was messaging with Carver's Facebook um, said, like, is this even you? To mm-hmm. no response. So people knew that this something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if anybody saw a post like this on a missing person's Facebook um, and knew that they were still missing, they would be worried. Yeah, and they've been missing for several weeks at this point, right? At this point, it was a month. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on November 3rd, 2016, which is this month, mm-hmm. um, on a 95-acre property that was surrounded by a chain-link fence that was about six or seven feet tall in Woodruff, South Carolina, which is close to Anderson, which is where uh, Kayla Brown and Charles Carver were kidnapped from, allegedly. Okay. Um, Investigators were on the property, and they heard banging. Um, They found a cargo container, which was about 30 feet by 15 feet, like a metal shipping container, next to a two-car garage with a, you know, like a loft above it. The cargo container was about the size of a bus, Mm -hmm. like a school bus, if you need a reference point. Um, And inside that cargo container, they found Carla Brown, or Kayla Brown, my apologies, um, who was alive but chained up by the neck and ankle inside of a cage inside of a shipping container. A big quote in a lot of the articles I read about this said that she was chained up like a dog due to how she was locked up. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you look this up on your own, you'll see a lot of that. Um, When Brown was found, she was apparently very distraught and panicked. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, it sounds terrible because at that point she had been gone um, missing from her home for two months. So I was really interested in how they found her and why it took two months. So, apparently, they found her after two months by using her cell phone. Police used her cell phone records, which they obtained from AT&T, which was her service provider, um, but they had to obtain a search warrant or a court order first. Mm -hmm. And instead of using, like, a GPS technology, like we use in apps, like if you use, like, the map app or anything, um, they used pings that her phone sent to cell phone towers Mm -hmm. just before it died. So... Since pings are sent constantly to several towers, records of these pings let law enforcement triangulate a location. Um, But it took two months because they had to obtain a search warrant and then they had to wait for AT&T to respond or to cooperate. Um, I read something from AT&T spokesperson about this who said uh, that it's a balance between cooperating with the like whatever law enforcement provides a search warrant and also protecting customers privacy so i thought that was interesting yeah um so how were the how were the couple kidnapped uh they went to the property which was owned by todd colhep he was a local real estate agent um and they were there to do some work on the property cleaning up Okay, so this was maybe like a business that uh, the the male... I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. Uh, are you talking about... Uh, the male that was abducted along Charles with... Carver. So, so Charles... Charles is, worked at a, I think, a local paper company. Kay- Kayla Brown was the person who had worked with Todd Colhep before. Okay. Cleaning houses. And I okay. think that it's related to his real estate business right but he asked them to come to his property specifically to help clean up the property gotcha 
So apparently he pulled out the gun and took them hostage, Mm -hmm. like very quickly while they were on his property. Brown's friend said that she had worked with the kidnapper before. um, And so they knew each other. But Culhep shot Carver in front of Brown, Mm -hmm. which I feel very terrible for this woman because not only was she kidnapped for two months, but her boyfriend was murdered in front of her. It's just horrible. Um, she hasn't spoken to the public directly yet because she was only found a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, but there are a couple details that she really there are a couple details that she revealed to loved ones. So she was kept inside the the cage within the shipping unit, chained up in the dark. She received one meal a day. Her captor let her out occasionally to walk around, but he never took off her chain. And Kolhep, her captor, once took her to the grave on his property, which presumably it would be Charles Carver's grave, Mm -hmm. um, and threatened that she would end up in a grave if she tried to escape. Mm -hmm. Um, So the day after Brown was found, a body was discovered on the property. It was Charles Carver's body, who Kolhep confessed to killing. But Kolhep confessed to three bodies being buried on his property. He confessed to killing a couple who went missing in 2015, whose bodies were also discovered there. Um, it, this was 25-year-old Megan Leigh McCraw-Coxie and 29-year-old Johnny Joe Coxie. They were both killed by gunshot wounds. Um, and they had also been hired by Kolhep to do work on his property. So, an unsettling pattern mm-hmm. by somebody who, obviously, is not a good person. Um, so, in addition to these bodies found on his property, police said that he confessed to four additional murders. Mm-hmm. So, if you're keeping track, that's seven people that he's responsible for killing. Um, so, he confessed to the four murders in a cold case in Chesney, South Carolina, from 2003. Uh, this honestly could be its own episode because it was pretty long, so I'm going to try to truncate it. Okay. Uh, but at a Superbike Motorsports store, uh, four people were found dead. They were fatally shot on November 6, 2003. Um, it was the owner, Scott Ponder, his mother, Beverly Guy, a service, service manager, Brian Lucas, and a mechanic, Chris Sherbert. Ponder's friend, Noel Lee, spoke to him before he drove over to the shop on the morning of November 6th. Seven minutes later, Lee found the four people dead. So in a span of seven minutes, Mm -hmm. these four people were murdered and no one was on the scene of the crime. Um, There were apparently some mistakes in this case, like Scott's wife was pregnant um, and they messed up the DNA test saying that her baby was not Scott's. Um, trying to, thinking that if the baby weren't Scott's, maybe she had been the person who either murdered or arranged the murder to get him, quote, out of the picture. But apparently they used the wrong DNA and had been testing the baby's DNA against Brian Lucas's DNA, who Mm. was the service manager. So there were a couple things like that. Um, Also, Cole Hepp's name was on the list of customer names, but he was never interviewed by the police. Mm-hmm. So Culhip 
admitted to firing a single bullet into the forehead of each of his victims. That was a detail that was never released to the public, which is why they confirmed that it was okay. him. Interesting. Yeah, because it would have been a significant amount of time. Um, and according to his mother, who we will talk about later, okay. um, he murdered them because he had, quote, had always wanted a motorbike and he didn't know how to ride it. And they made fun of him and they laughed at him. They made jokes at him and he was hurt. So, how, uh, how old was he? Um, so that was 2003. He was in his like late 20s, I think, early 30s. And he got all heated up because they were making fun of him for riding a dirt bike? And not knowing how, I guess. But the thing is, like... <laughs> Jesus Christ, This definitely, dude. to me, like, listening to the mom's interview, which we will talk about, um... It was so clear that this man was not in the right state of mind. Yeah, it was like something's... terrifyingly wrong. Okay. Um, Clearly. Yeah. So it just kind of like reading that it made you made me really upset, like sad for these people, because obviously like they didn't do anything wrong. It's pretty, like, yeah, they're just like having a good time, or I guess said something that set them off. Yeah. So wow. and like. Yeah, all of these people left people behind. So, um, what made Colhead do these things? So, his background can shed a little bit of light into maybe why. Because um, the why question hasn't really been answered uh, for a lot of the family and friends of the people who have been murdered. So, he grew up in Carolina, but he moved in with his dad in Arizona when he was 12 years old because his mother apparently couldn't deal with his angry and destructive behavior anymore. Like, he would destroy property when he was mad at her. Okay. So in an effort um, to kind of clear this up, he had been asking to move to Arizona to live with his father, mm -hmm. and his mom thought maybe, like, this would help straighten him out. Okay, so... Uh, him moving to... Arizona with his father did not help straighten him out because in 1986, um, he was charged with kidnapping a 14-year-old girl. He was about the same age at that period of time. Um, he took her to his father's house while his father was out, and he raped her after binding her with duct tape, which is just horrible, obviously. Um, so... He spent 14 years in jail for that crime because he pled guilty to kidnapping in exchange for the rape charges being dropped. Mm -hmm. um, he was put on the sex offender list, and apparently that was very well known in Woodruff, South Carolina, where he was living um, up until this month, I guess. So he was a known sex offender. People in the community knew about it. However, um, he told people, according to a real estate colleague of his, um, that it was known that he was registered as a sex offender it just I, i'm sorry it, it just blows my mind that he was even able was he a licensed real estate agent yes because they they run background like i used to do real estate they run background checks specifically so people like that are not able to be like hey come out to this property and i, I want to show you something or i need help with it or whatever you know like exactly yeah. to avoid this sort of situation I truly don't know why 
if there are regulations in place like that. But right. it could have had something to do with the fact that he was an early teenager. That's yeah, like maybe he was expunged thing. from his record. But if he was still a registered sex offender, I, I would think that he wouldn't be able to get a, a license yeah. for, for that. It's very surprising. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, the real estate colleague of his said that he had told people that it was based on trumped up charges after he had <sighs> gone joyriding with a girl and upset her father, who was apparently a prominent local official. So... I think a lot of his neighbors and co-workers, people who knew him in Woodruff, South Carolina, um, said pretty nice things about him. They said they were surprised by this, horrified by it, that he was like a smart guy who knew his stuff in real estate. Mm -hmm. He seemed nice enough. So I think there was a lot of surprise around this, um, even given his background being a registered sex offender. Colep uh, also left some creepy Amazon reviews that are currently being investigated as part of his investigation. What? These include reviews of padlocks that state, quote, solid locks, have five on a shipping container, won't stop them, but sure will slow them down till they are too old to care. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. What? Yeah. No, it's, um just so disturbing to me um, yeah it also we talked about carver charles carver's facebook activity and how people thought this diction was weird mm-hmm. um this what i read, just read was in all lowercase uh improper so like similar grammatical yeah this had and stuff. lots of ellipses in the middle so <sighs> he also wrote on the same brand of padlocks on a different review um now my locks have locks place is Hotel California now, which ties into the meme that we talked about about Hotel California. So he might have really liked the Eagles or it had some sort of significance to him. I'm not sure, but it definitely, there's a connection. It's a pretty deep song. I mean, I think a lot of people find it meaning, but his meaning that he found was a little bit Far from, I think, the intended Yeah, I always thought it was message. about drug addiction. That was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So the fact that he may have ruined a song that I really like also is sad. Um, I'm sorry. Me too. On top of all of this actual terrible stuff. Um, <laughs> so Colehep also posted things on his own Facebook about general missing persons on September 15th. So two weeks after... Kayla Brown and Charles Carver went missing. So supposedly it was in response to people sharing the missing posters and sharing information looking for these people. Mm-hmm. So he posted, quote, reading the news, this person, this person missing, that person missing, another person missing. Oh, wait, that person just went to beach with friend, other person found with her parole violation boyfriend. In the event I become missing, please note no one would take me. Most likely, if I am missing, it is become because my dumb ass did something on that tractor again, and I am too stubborn to go to the doctor. I got nine lives. I ain't done yet. Dude. Ugh. Yeah. Um, again, weird diction. It's got the ellipses, so it's similar to things on Charles Carpenter's Facebook. When he was living with his... Uh father in arizona was was there like domestic abuse toward him like was did he have like a really abusive 
So childhood or something. One article I read talked about his stepfather and his mother's home Mm -hmm. being abusive, Um, but that was the only time it was mentioned. So I'm not sure like the extent of the abuse or. And he would have been like really, really young. Yes. Which I mean could maybe make things even worse. I think. But like I'm not. I, I mean I'm no expert, but I I just that always comes up when you hear stories about these people who like clearly have um, some type of like personality disorder, or because because like as um, I know this is the first time you've sat in on one of these with me, but it comes up a lot where um, people like Eileen Warnos is an example where she was described as having borderline personality disorder. There's other people who um, we've covered on this show who have like antisocial personality disorder. And, and so it seems to come up a lot. And from what you've been describing with the way this guy writes and this like these weird messages, like, haha, I've got five padlocks on this shipping container. And just with like, like why, what? Like who does that? And he seems to have like definitely like a high level of psychopathy and probably I would imagine it will come out eventually once uh, forensic psychiatrists get around to this dude that, you know, he has like antisocial personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder or something like that. Like normal, like normal brains do not process information that way. Yeah. No, as a layman, there is definitely something wrong with this person. Right. So <laughs> Should be fucked up with this dude. Yeah, it's really terrible to me um so uh, before he agreed to cooperate with the police he demanded to speak with his mother who i told you we would be speaking about again um he also demanded that he be able to send her a picture um and transfer money to a daughter of a friend for college did they let him do it they did what i mean i'm I'm not sure why, um, but that was those were his demands for cooperation. Okay. Um, so they let him do it, and his mother was interviewed about what they spoke about. So he, his mother, in an interview, said that he chained up Brown because, quote, she saw him evidently kill her boyfriend, and he didn't know what to do with her. He couldn't turn her loose. She'd just go to the police. Um, so... I'm not sure how much his mother played into his beliefs, but it I'm not in the position to analyze that or analyze what a mother would feel after learning that her son had done these things. Um, mm-hmm. But it was interesting to me that she was ex- explaining like the thought process. She also said that her son apparently killed Carver because he got, quote, smart-mouthed and, quote, nasty. Uh-huh. Um, another point on, like, I found his mother's interview interesting because it's just such a different viewpoint to come at this from. Mm-hmm. Um, she said that she wanted Kayla Brown to know that she was sorry and that she thinks Todd is, too. That's nice. I mean, yeah, I... I don't really know what to make of it. I think it it could be interpreted as this, like, poor woman who has a great burden on her of her son and she feels very guilty. Or it could be someone who really helped contribute to yeah. this person's mental unwellness. And may have some mental issues of her own. Yeah. Possibly. 
Quite. I mean, I'm just entirely just speculating there, but I, I mean, you said that um, the mother and uh, Collip's stepfather were said to have possibly been abusive towards him. I think it was just the stepfather. It was just the, the stepfather. Art- yeah, in the article. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if that came from Collip himself or if it came from yeah. his mother. But well, in that case, I, I may have to retract that previous statement. But okay, if um. So, like, this interview, was this just, like, in for, like, a local news station or something? It was, this interview, um, the quotes from, about him from his mother came from CBS's 48 Hours. Okay, so it's just one of those, like, evening... Programs, yeah. Uh, cr- true crime programs, okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, so, in addition to Brown being found alive and multiple bodies being discovered... A large amount of guns and ammunition were seized from his property. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that uh, the police were terming it a large amount to me says it was quite a bit, but they didn't have a specific number of guns or how much ammunition he had released. Mm-hmm. Um, so enough to be concerning. Enough to be concerned. It was a concerning stockpile. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> his uh, stockpile level was at concerning. Yeah. <laughs> so his next court appearance is in January. Okay. Kayla Brown is staying with friends, and I just want to say that I wish her the best in her recovery. This is such a terrible thing yeah. to read about, and I know we all like true crime. I really enjoy um, mm-hmm. listening to it, but... This stuff is really difficult for right. the victims. Like, like this, and the this stuff we talk about does have like very, very real impact on people, and it's important to never forget that um, you know there, there was this woman will probably never be the same. No. Or, so. or at least, I mean, it, it's going to take it's going to be a rough road to um, overcome the physical and mental uh, scars. So yeah, by by all means, I I hope that. Um, she get, has the support that she needs and yeah terrible so we're sending her our best in her recovery and then uh, charles carver is going to be buried on his birthday which is november Aww. 19th oh that's so sad yeah he would have been 33 damn so while it is a terrible story um luckily kayla brown was found and mm-hmm. people who have been missing their bodies were found and uh, the family members of those at the motor sports store with that cold case they mm-hmm. have some closure so and I, w- I would imagine perhaps miss brown's testimony against this shithead can you know put him away and uh you know help get the uh get get help ensure that justice is done yeah um so yeah that's that's crazy it is really crazy and i think it was compounded for me by the fact that it was it happened literally this month like in the past three months they were kidnapped weird stuff happened on facebook she was found and all sorts of other information was found so yeah that's really crazy i kept seeing this ironically uh popping up on my facebook like news feed Mm -hmm. and i kept kind of seeing and i I was actually like in the back of my head i was like oh you know that would probably be a really good episode for dhf but then um like I, i never got around to actually looking into it so i'm glad that you decided to research it yourself and and come on and do it as a um story for part of this uh project and um I, I, I mean, 
I'm just pretty floored. Have you, uh, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, I made a note as you were speaking earlier. Are you familiar with the toy box killer? I actually came across that while I was researching. Yeah, because I'm, it doesn't surprise me that I'm not the first one to have thought of parallels with that. But yeah, uh, David Parker Ray, aka the toy box killer, was a guy um, abducting prostitutes and torturing them in a uh, like modified trailer in uh, in New Mexico back in the uh, 1990s. And this story kind of does have certain similarities to it where it's just, uh, you know, false imprisonment, uh, torture. Seems like this guy, someone who seems like they've been active and doing these sorts of things for a long period of time. So that's a really another for listeners who are looking for just more incredibly disturbing shit to read into. Look up the toy box killer, um, and I guess that's it. Okay. That that was my main thought. Yeah, I think that when I when I came across it in my research, there were parallels. Um, obviously, different intent. Um, mm-hmm. But it's that same, like, holding people against their will. Yeah. Absolute creepy, really, like, terrible. Really scary. It's pretty much, like, probably my number one fear, I would say. Yeah. It's, like, up there, definitely. Um, totally understand that. Like, reading this was really, it made me sad for these poor people, and it made me really angry for them, too. So, I, what you were saying earlier, I really do hope that justice is served. And maybe this man can find... The help that he obviously needs. This guy, Colip? Yeah, I mean, he, I think he's a very mentally unwell person. Uh, okay, because my next question for you is actually going to be, do you think he should be executed? Um, I don't think that I have all of the facts yet. <laughs> what a diplomatic answer. I mean, I, I, really, love it. I think it's hard to pass judgment without all of the facts. And I do think, like, that is somebody else's life hanging in the balance so even though he's done some terrible stuff and (laughs) I don't think that by any means he should be able to live a life outside of jail like I'm not sure if I'm qualified enough to understand Mm -hmm. um, what should what the best course of action is on what uh, the victims would want Caleb Brown might have a specific want in mind or something to help her heal the best I've been calling for the death penalty a lot on this show lately. <laughs> I know you haven't listened to episode six not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I'm getting there. But uh, I, I was actually, it's so weird because um, I, I like, I said this on the episode and then I also wrote like a short um, article for the website about my opinion on the death penalty. And I said that it should be used with extreme restraint and should only be used in very extreme cases, but that for cases involving like um, it, um, like extreme child abuse, to keep continue using the word extreme, mm-hmm. uh, extreme child abuse or uh, like just wanton disregard for human life, mm-hmm. like strapping a chick into a shipping container and torturing her and abusing her. For, for weeks and weeks, like, those are the sorts of situations where I do think that the death penalty should at least be considered. Mm-hmm. 
So if this dude ends up on death row in another couple of years, I'm not going to necessarily feel too bad about it. Understandable. Yeah. For situations uh, where, I guess to your point, where like severe mental illness is a factor and perhaps there was like some level of incompetency at the time that the crimes were committed, then like maybe, but it doesn't sound like this guy was like a person with like schizophrenia who was very low functioning and genuinely did not know what they were doing. Uh, It sounded, it sounds to me kind of like a high functioning, like psychopath. Quite possibly. What I'm interested in was your point about the real estate license. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's going to be any follow-up action for the people who certified him and allowed this to happen. Maybe if there aren't restrictions in place now, hopefully someone will look at this and put restrictions in place. Yeah, Um, there should be. I, I, um, I... Went through the process to get a license in the state of Virginia, and I don't... Fun fact about Keegan. Fun fact. <laughs> this was in a former life back uh, back in uh, the days before I decided that I just wanted to do podcasts about scary criminal stuff. But yeah, no, I, I wouldn't imagine that the um, standards for getting a license in the state of Virginia would be different than uh, South Carolina at least not that radically different. So, who knows? Hopefully that'll get looked into. I hope so, because if there isn't a precaution being taken, given, like, area or state that is being taken elsewhere, um, that should definitely be looked into at the very least, if not acted upon. Yeah, 100%. All right, uh, was there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up this segment? I'm glad to be here. (laughs) All right, cool. suggested by Amy who how did you even come across this one so it is set in Williamsburg Virginia which is a place or around Williamsburg Virginia and that's a place that is very near and dear to my heart Uh, so a friend who went to college down there told me about it Um, so it's kind of been at the back of my mind as something very unsettling Mm -hmm. um, in an area that is a very wonderful place. Okay, cool. So we're going to be talking about the Colonial Parkway Killer. This is going to be a probably shorter segment, but it's something that I thought would be good to add in and something that definitely piqued my curiosity once Amy brought it to my attention. So let's talk a little bit about the location where these crimes took place. So Virginia is a very diverse state in terms of geography. In the western part, it's kind of rolling mountains, uh, you know, just quintessential Appalachia. 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 
Um, but in the eastern part, it's a coastal region, so you have a lot of swampy lowlands that contain the remains of some of the earliest European settlements in the uh, modern-day United States. Williamsburg and Jamestown and Yorktown form a historic triangle in that area of the state of Virginia, and it's connected by a scenic highway called the Colonial Parkway. So this is just a 23-mile scenic stretch that connects the, um, the historic towns of Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. It snakes between dense forests and kind of tranquil waterfront views. I, I'm sure Amy is more familiar with it than I am. Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, parkway. They have forests that you're going through. You can see marshes, and there are even um, like riverside views where there are little beaches that locals go to when it's warm enough out to go to a quote unquote beach. Right, and it's um, the waterfront views are of the James River. Right, which is actually like I, I didn't realize this, but it's about uh, four to five miles wide. At yeah, it's points. massive. Um, I know a friend of mine jumped into the James River once and was very lucky not to be swept away. Yeah, yeah, you definitely uh, don't want to be messing around there. And and so kind of to to the point of all of this, it's been intentionally kept very organic over the years, so they don't have street lights. They don't have well-lit road signs or things of that nature. It's supposed to look very kind of old school and natural. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I read that it's actually paid, or actually it doesn't have any marked traffic lines. Is that true? I'm questioning reality now because I feel like it definitely does. Like a, you know, like a yellow dotted line down the middle. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. I feel like it does. (laughs) I've driven on it before. So I'm going to go with that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Okay. Because it didn't make sense to me either. And I saw that and I was like, I feel like that's probably illegal for like a state highway. It might have not in the past. um, And then they could have updated it since the incidents that you were talking about if you got it from that kind of a report but if you got it from a general article about the parkway i would be very surprised okay cool well let's talk about what actually happened here so these crimes took place in the 1980s and they were attributed to an anonymous character um an anonymous killer who allegedly was going around and murdering couples who were kind of parked along the Colonial Parkway in in their cars. So the first murders, or the first set of murders that took place occurred on October 12th, 1986. Two women, Kathy Thomas, who was 27 years old and a uh, graduate of the Naval Academy, and Becky Dowski, who was 21 and was a William and Mary student. So William and Mary is a college located in Williamsburg. They're both found dead in Thomas's 1980 white Honda Civic. So they were parked just off the parkway and they were found dead in their car. I, it is my understanding that they were a lesbian couple which I only bring up because maybe there is like a hate crime sort of element to these 
murders potentially I, I read in a couple of different sources that they were lovers so who knows i'm gonna go with that as being accurate they had rope burns on their necks and wrists and apparently had been strangled and then had their throats slashed so these were very violent deaths and in addition to their throats being slashed diesel fuel was poured on the bodies and on the vehicle that they were in, but had apparently failed to ignite. Interestingly, nothing had been stolen, and there were no signs of sexual assault. A clump of hair was found gripped between Thomas's fingers, but aside from that, there were really no clues left behind. It's terrible. Just awful. Because they were both college students, is that... Uh, Kathy Thomas was actually, she had graduated a few years before from the Naval Academy, mm. but um, Becky Yudowski was just a William & Mary student, and she was only 21 years old, so very, very young, and just unfortunately was taken before her time. Yeah, in a terrible way. Right. Um, so... The thing is, a year later, around the same time, on September 22nd, 1987, another couple was killed. So is that is that one year later? All, yeah, almost exactly one year later. Uh, it was David Nobling, who was 20 years old, and Robin Edwards, who was 14. So I don't know if they were like a couple couple or if... Maybe it could have been friends, just friends, yeah, or like giving family friends, giving her, a, yeah, exactly, like giving her a ride somewhere or something like that. Yeah, um, but for some reason, in all these articles, they're everyone's referred to as a couple. Well, maybe so it's just a, a couple of people, <laughs> just a couple, I don't know, optimistic platonic. thinking because I that's a pretty large age difference yeah that's definitely like pedophile status um but again it could have been a platonic relationship i yes. don't want to jump to conclusions that's true i yes so uh they were found shot to death in ragged island wildlife management refuge which was actually not directly on the colonial parkway this was about 30 miles away from where thomas and dowski's bodies had been found the year before and it was in an in an entirely different area just outside of Newport News. So I don't know if that's significant or not. Uh, it, it just kind of catches my attention because it's not the same MO as that's the first exactly murders. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. 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 So um, they were shot to death, whereas the first murders were strangulation and then uh, like cut it, slitting their throats. So I I don't know. That was the first thing I noticed as I was reading through this. And I was like, mm, well, maybe it wasn't truly one serial killer. Did the articles you read about this link up the amount of time that went by before they started saying maybe it was the same person? No. Okay. No, they didn't. I'm curious about how they came to that conclusion. Like if it was immediate or if it was they couldn't find anyone. So they assumed it could have been the same person yeah i'm curious about that too in any case um a few months later well i guess what, let's see it was on april 9th 1988 so that would be what 
about six months later. Yeah, about a half a year. Yeah. So about six months later, on April 9th, 1988, two Christopher Newport University students, Cassandra Lee Haley and Richard Keith Call, were reported missing after a party in Newport News. Um, and they had been there on their first date together, according to friends. So the next day, they were found in a red 1982 Toyota Celica that was abandoned on the Colonial Parkway. However, or I'm sorry, the vehicle was found, but the bodies were not in the vehicle, and the bodies have never been found. Oh. Yeah. So again, a different... Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. A different sort of set of circumstances. And that that one remains unsolved. They've never found the bodies. They don't really know exactly what happens to these two kids. That's terrible. I feel like I'm saying that a lot, but it's because this is just a really sad story or right. set of incidences. Right. On October 19th, 1989, a little over a year later, a year and a half later... Anna Marie Phelps, who was 18, and Daniel Lauer, who was 21, were found in New Kent County by hunters near a rest area on Interstate 64. Okay, so that's really, that's the road you would take from Williamsburg to Richmond, which is Virginia's state capital. So that's a pretty regularly used road. It's like a big highway. Right, and it's also about 35 miles away from the Colonial Parkway. And over 50 miles away from where the CNU students uh, were found the year before. Yeah, in the opposite direction. So mm-hmm. Richmond is uh, west and Newport News is right on the coast. It's in the east side of the state. Right. And the bodies were badly decomposed when they were found. So they had been there for a while. I guess they must have been in a remote location or they must have been... I mean, they were found by guys that were out there hunting. Yeah, so one would assume out in the, in the woods or in the weeds. Out in the sticks. Essentially, yeah. But they, uh, they appear to have been stabbed to death with no signs of strangulation or bullet wounds or anything like that so again it doesn't another really, set of different methods and, and exactly yeah. another set of different methods so really unfortunately and sadly for the victims and their families and really everyone involved these crimes remain unsolved there was a guy named Steve Spingala who was, I think that's how you pronounce his name it's uh, either Spingala or Spingala what do you think? I'm going to go with Spangala without looking at how it's spelled. <laughs> okay, sure. Anyway, he's a retired Milwaukee homicide detective who created a profile of the killer in 2010 after interviewing the victim's families and law enforcement officers who were involved with the case. He proposed that the murders are actually the work of different killers so me and you are now like honorary homicide detectives because <laughs> we do we deduced that one as well but he uh he also said that particularly the thomas and dowski slayings the mm-hmm. first ones where they were found with their throats cut and they've been bound and strangled and yeah. just brutalized sadly uh he, he said that that one particularly didn't seem to fit with any of the other 
crimes and that it was more likely that we're looking at a situation with multiple perpetrators. Hmm. The FBI itself has speculated that the suspect may have been a law enforcement officer or a park ranger or at least someone who was impersonating one. Mm -hmm. And this is because there didn't appear to be a sign of forced entry into uh, the vehicles. Or at least in the case of um, Thomas and Dowski, they said it it looked like they had rolled the window down and someone had, like, reached in or something. Okay. Um, this is a more outlandish theory, but I'll throw it out there because it's kind of, I don't know, different at least. But some people have suggested that the perpetrator may have even been a rogue operative from the CIA because the CIA has a training facility nearby at Camp Perry. Camp Perry. Perry. Um, it's, uh often referred to as the farm if you're familiar with CIA. no I mean <laughs> in CIA movies Animal Farm George Orwell no, got no. it in CIA movies they're like oh we learned that down in the farm and like that's what it's in reference to I don't know that's an awesome piece of trivia I've never heard that before I've only actually heard that from word of mouth so don't quote me <laughs> on that because now if it's just completely wrong I'm so sorry to the people who are listening to this who are in the CIA my apologies <laughs> I apologize if we've offended the CIA <laughs> okay <laughs> so anyway um, it actually I, I'm gonna go out on a limb here I don't think that one's true it's a little bit too, like, Hollywood. Are they saying that because the methods that these people were killed by are so different? I don't know. Or is that just some sort of weird... I think they're saying that because it's, like, a cool conspiracy theory. Well, that is unfortunate. Does anything suggest, like, is it CIA training to, like, strangle and then slash and then pour diesel? And... I mean, I guess my only, like... The only way to rationalize that theory would be to say that uh, the CIA operative used all of those different methods because they were trained in them and they wanted to throw people off the case by making people think it was four different killers. But again, I think that is incredibly outlandish. Yeah, it's definitely reaching. Yeah. What would be the... Like, why would... What's the motive? Like, I... To kill people... I get well, to me, like, even if this is four different killers, if this is one person, it really does seem like it's senseless. Like, it obviously, I don't have all the facts, but it just seems like these people, yeah, like nothing was stolen, yeah, there, and, weren't, there weren't signs of sexual assault, so there wasn't like a, a sexual motivation to them, yeah. It just doesn't seem like there's a clear motivation. And my assumption would be you would be talking about somebody, some suspected person um their motive if they had people that they suspected right so it came out in january 2010 that the fbi actually hadn't tested a multitude of evidence for dna or other trace material at the scene of these crimes uh the the way this came out was actually kind of a weird story, and I don't have it written down in front of me, but I can kind of briefly paraphrase it for you if you want. Yes. Basically okay. what happened is there was an FBI instructor who showed, uh, or either a current or former FBI instructor, who showed like over 40 different classified crime scene photos to a group of students. 
like FBI students at Quantico? Yeah, like aspiring FBI agents or okay. something. And the, they didn't have proper permission to do this. And there were like really graphic, like gruesome photos. And the family found out about this uh, one way or another. The families found out about this. And as a way to appease them, the FBI was like, all right, guys, I'll tell you what. We've got this evidence. We haven't really tested it. We'll test it for you as a, as a sh- show of respect for your loss and your situations or whatever. All right. That's kind of in a nutshell what happened. And so they tested it and they unfortunately found no conclusive results from the DNA. And as of... October 2016, the case remains open. Hmm. On the record, the FBI says that the case is very active and they're they're still actively investigating it. But one of the family members of the victims said that he had actually been told off the record by an FBI um, official that cases like this one don't really receive much attention because, I mean, it's a 30-year-old cold case with very little evidence to go off of. So it's not really high priority for them. Yeah, it's interesting to me that they would group them as one person. And I wonder if that came out through media instead of the police or how that gained traction. Uh, I always, like, I think I've said this on the show before, but I always suspect in cases like this, it's scarier and it's an easier story to sell um, as like a journalist to say, oh, there's like this boogeyman type figure mm-hmm. going around committing these murders when in reality the explanation is probably more mundane. Could just be a series of slightly similar but unaffiliated homicides. Yeah. I feel really bad for all of their families. That sounds difficult, especially with the accidental photo release. Yeah. It's like an extra heartbreak that was unnecessary. Right. I I agree with you. But that's... uh, So that's that's the story. I was kind of looking to do a shorter one this time around just because the last couple of installments I've been talking for like over an hour (laughs) like researching and just kind of going crazy myself so i I just wanted a a little quick straightforward one for people to think about and maybe look into if they're curious about learning more so that is the colonial parkway killer the most iconic crime of your lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't come off with a lifetime? I don't know. I feel like all my answers are gonna be really lame. 
I mean... I'm going to come up with it, and then I'll tell you next time. How about that? I feel like... I don't know. Are you ever asked to pick your favorite band? Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult when there are so many things that have, you know... Yeah, so the parallel could be drawn for, like, most impactful crime. Right. There are a lot of crimes that I think had a lot of impact, but I'm not I'm not sure. And I don't think that I'm as well-educated in true crime as you are. Maybe. I mean, I, I know I'm not. Uh, I mean, it's, okay. <laughs> so. Well, all right. That's fine. So, yeah, uh, just keep me posted on that one. I will. Hopefully, um, hopefully we'll be able to hear your insight in in a future episode i'll work on it all right cool well that's the show for today thank you for listening happy thanksgiving (laughs) yeah happy happy thanksgiving to you uh maybe you've been listening to this episode while making a turkey or don't listen to this episode and cook food you've been listening to this on a drive to your grandparents house with your young children in the back seat i hope not that either (laughs) i hope you're you're curled up on the couch next to a gentle fire all right i feel like that sounds like the best scenario (laughs) the best scenario for listening to this horrific show yeah i hope that you're gonna do something after this that restores your faith in humanity yeah go volunteer or like knit something or donate to charity definitely donate to charity especially around thanksgiving there are a lot of people who need help and for people who aren't in the u.s you can also donate even though it's not Thanksgiving. Donate to something in the U.S. to show your allegiance. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. Whoa. Whoa. Water down. God almost made me spill my water because of that blasphemous (laughs) comment I just made. But seriously, uh, thank you for listening. And as always, remember, uh, if you like the show, if you like what we're putting out there, please rate and review on iTunes. It just takes a second and is really helpful. And definitely write a comment about how great Keegan's music is. You're too sweet. That's me. So uh, do that. Join the Facebook group if you want kind of up-to-date. No pressure. Stuff uh, about the show, uh, including episode release stuff. Because sometimes the release schedule isn't totally consistent. And you can find the latest updates on the releases there on the Facebook page. So check that out. It's a closed group, but we'll approve anyone who wants to join. Um, So just uh, go ahead, check that out. You can also check out the website if you want to see some just supplemental information about the show. And uh, finally, we'll we'll be back again soon. Uh, My name is Keegan. This has been another installment of Down Home Fear, and I would like to thank Amy for agreeing to come on. Thanks so much for having me. This was very interesting. I feel like I learned a lot through researching my own and also listening to yours, so thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we will uh, be planning on having you back at some point. For the Christmas episode. (laughs) Yeah. All right. All right. That's it for now. Uh, Thanks again. Thanks, guys.